Welcome to Playmakers, the game industry podcast. Whether you work at a studio, publisher, service provider, or startup, this is the podcast that will give you all the information and entertainment you need to succeed in the game industry. Who am I? Just your friendly neighborhood veteran designer and producer, Jordan Blackman. In each episode of Playmakers, I go to work uncovering insights, tactics, and know-how from a wide range of game industry luminaries. My goal? To help you win the game of making games. Are you ready? Then let's begin. Hey, what's up? Welcome back to Playmakers. It's been a minute, so what do I have in terms of updates? Things are good over here. Business is booming. Life is good. Been keeping busy, having a good time as much as possible. However, I did get coronavirus and that was pretty intense. I was not one of these people who had to go to the hospital, not one of these people who was sick for a week and then immediately better. I was one of these kind of middle people, long haulers. I was sick for a couple months. And then after that, which was, you know, in and of itself, just very intense to be sick for that long a time. After that, I had what they call post-viral syndrome, where I was basically unable to make it through a whole day without a nap for like two, three more months on top. So a lot of last year, I was different, different than the normal Jordan, but I'm excited to be well past all of that and back in action. And I hope you and your family are doing well. This has been such a challenging time for so many people. And with that said, I wanna get into our guest this week, Jay Powell. Jay is someone I've known for a real long time. I've known him for about 10 years. He's been in the industry for, I think, 20 or more. And he's the host of his own podcast, Indie Game Business Podcast. They have an active Twitch stream and they have a huge Discord server. There's like hundreds of people active in there all the time. You'll find the links in the show notes. And he helps indie studios succeed with the business side of the game industry. His clients include you know, some bigger companies too, like Other Oceans, Bill Games, Deep Silver, and lots and lots of small studios. He's made products with companies like Amazon, National Geographic, Disney, Cartoon Network, MTV, Nickelodeon, Microsoft, you get the idea. His work has been published in Game Design Methods and Secrets of the Game Business. And, you know, Jay's one of the guys that you will see on the speaking circuit in the industry at trade shows and events and stuff like that. So Jay is a very experienced, knowledgeable gentleman, and we get into important topics for indie devs and small devs trying to get their foot in the door, especially with publishers. We talk about things like how to strategize your approach to publishers as an indie developer, how to make that approach. What are some of the biggest mistakes that small studios make when they are looking for these sorts of deals, when they are presenting their games, when they are making pitches, what are the big mistakes and how to avoid them? We talk about the hot areas right now of opportunity in the market for developers. We talk about how being on platforms like Microsoft Game Pass can affect sales on PC platforms like Steam, and it may not be the effect that you think it is. We also talk about how coronavirus has affected the publishing landscape for indies and small dev teams. So if that sounds useful for you, then stick around. You're going to enjoy this interview with Jay Powell. Real quick before we get into it, if you want to support Playmakers Podcast and what we're doing here, I would really appreciate it if you would write us a review on iTunes or your platform of choice. And anything else you want to do, shoot me an email, send me send me a kind note, send me some cookies. Just kidding, not asking for cookies. But seriously, if you want to support the show other than cookies, we definitely appreciate your review and your subscription to the show 
and just being kind of with us on the journey. So if you want to let me know what topics you'd like to see covered or what you think we should be doing as a show, you can send me an email, jordan at brightblack.co, and I'll hear you out. Okay, with that said, let's get into the interview with Jay right about now. Hey, what's up, Jay? Welcome to Playmakers. Great to have you here. Good to be here. I appreciate it. It's nice being on the other side of the interview table. I know. I've been on your show before. It was super fun. And I know you've been doing it for a while now, which is impressive. It was unintentional. It literally started as, hey, why don't we do this? And now it's been two years. And so the big running joke is I had a good friend of mine when we first started doing indie game business. And he's like, what if being a streamer and doing these podcasts are, are what you're actually going to be doing more? I'm like, what? Nobody, that's not going to happen. And now obviously we still do the consulting work, but it's been, I think a hundred some episodes and it's grown into a discord and digital events. Let's, let's zoom out a little bit here. So tell us about you, your career and how you got to be where you are now doing the show, running the consulting that you're doing. Give us the bigger picture. So I started in the industry back in the late 90s. I had an English literature degree coming out of university, which is literally just about as useful as, you know, a psych degree. <laughs> I have a philosophy degree, so I hear you. <laughs> I, I started an internship with an agency in the area. And so I basically uh, needed beer money when I was in college. And I saw an ad and it said, come in and play these games and give us feedback and tell us what you think. And I'm like, I can do that. That's not a problem. And that's how it got started. And so it just so happened that the two guys that ran the uh, agency, they came out of Duke University's Fuqua Business School, which is way above my pay grade. They knew business, but they weren't gamers and I knew games. And then when I graduated, they offered me a job and everyone I knew and my family was like, don't do this. There's <laughs> no, that those two guys don't own anything and it's horrible, but I wanted to. And I was there for 10 years, but the last two or three years, we, we transitioned the company from being an agency into a casual game publisher. Over the first seven or eight years, I did some of the very first publishing and distribution deals for companies like Paradox. The first time Crusader Kings and Hearts of Iron and Europa Universalis came to the U.S. was because of a deal I set up. Hey, Paradox is still going pretty strong, too. Yes. Yeah, it's one of those things that, yes, you're not going to find all of this listed on Moby Games or anywhere else, but at least I know I was a little part of that. So you got I into this that. niche of doing the negotiation and the deal making for these development teams? Yeah, that's, that's exactly it. At the time, we were actually doing country by country retail distribution deals. And, and the funny thing is, we're at a point in the industry where that's like coming back around. And it's a lot of the digital deals that we do now, you're not sectioned off by country, but by language. Hmm. We'll have a digital publisher in Southeast Asia, a different one in China, possibly a different one in Japan, and then one for North America and Western Europe, a different one for South America, and sometimes somebody else, well, obviously the MENA region, another one. It's all coming. It's all coming back around. Those deals aren't by country; they're by language. So you say, "Hey, if you can run ads profitably in this language anywhere, just go for it." Yep. 
Interesting. Okay. And, and we did that. And then we transitioned to a casual game publisher. And I was, at the time I was literally doing four people's jobs. I, it was just too much. And so eventually one day I said, you know what? I'm done. I'm out. And I went to started a company, my first startup with two friends who had also worked with me at that company. And it was a production studio. But at the time, there was no such thing as a production studio. Developers thought we were publishers, thought we were developers. We weren't either one. Mm. We were handling the design, the business, and overseeing production. And then we tried to make that jump from doing contract work to original IP, which is not easy. No. Even for someone who had been doing this for so long it's not easy no we the first game we did original ip wise which wasn't even really original ip it, it was a we licensed a new york times best-selling author that did really well and then the next two uh, didn't and so that was that and after that i was a guy reached out to me it's actually how i met you adrian crook running a game design consulting firm and he yep. said i need some help with the biz dev and, so, and he's been a guest he's been on the show yeah. And so I was like, okay, yeah, I could do this. And, and then the more I started thinking about it, I was like, wait a minute, if there's a niche in the industry for a consulting firm that does nothing but free to play game design consulting, <laughs> surely to yeah. God, there's one for business consulting. And so that's the Powell group and it's 10 years old now. And wow. that's what I've been doing on that side. And so we handle- Does that mean I've known you for 10 years? Apparently. Isn't wow. that scary? You, you had hair. And I, think, <laughs> I still have it now. It's just on my face. That's all of us. That's the COVID laziness. Like, I'm not going to shave. I have no reason to shave. Fundamentally, with the consulting firm, we do biz dev licensing and, and marketing consulting for everyone from indie devs to developers who have been around for two decades who, you know, we handle their business office, basically, finding new contracts and finding them publishers and things like that. But we also get brought in by publishers who need to find developers. We work with IPs. We work with a lot of tech companies. We track for 4,000 some developers and another 750 plus publishers. We know what they want, what they're good at, what they're not good at, what they need, and companies who need access to that network and people behind it that have been doing this for two decades, that's who hires us. So that's the long and the short of the power group. And, and then we get into the my hobby that has grown completely out of control with indie game business. And that's basically our education initiative because there's nowhere to learn the business of games. Totally. We've got universities all over the place that are like, yeah, pay us 40 grand and we'll give you a piece of paper that says you're a game designer. They don't teach business marketing, anything like that. And so that was the reason we started that. And that's been going for two years now. It's awesome. And and I want to support you in what you're doing, because I think it's so important helping creators, helping indies understand and succeed in the business side, because you must have both. Yeah. If you want to do it sustainably, if you want to do a project for fun, then that's great. But if you want to really make this your life and make products that people actually get to see and play. And that's what we tell people. If, if you want to be an artist and and make a game throw it up on itch or even steam and it's something that you want to do as a hobby you don't need us but if you want to get past the part of your life where you're working a 40-hour week job and then you go home and work on your game at nights and on the weekends because that's what you're really passionate about and you want to make that game as your job 
you absolutely have to understand the business and the marketing side of it. Let's say I'm a, I'm an indie and I get that and I want to make it a job and I want to execute. I'm just a beginner. What don't I know? You need to understand how many options you have. And that's probably one of the biggest things that I've seen in the last at least two or three years since we've been doing the show is we'll talk to a developer and say, do you need help finding a publisher? And they're like, I don't know. We've already talked to everybody. Mm. Like how many publishers have you pitched to? 20 or 25 and i'm like okay you're only missing 200 more wow. so that's the reality for better or for worse right now like i said there are 750 plus publishers out there are there 700 worth working with probably not you do have options and everybody's got their strengths and their weaknesses just like any other industry some publishers are better at doing pickup deals some publishers are better if you need multi-million dollar advances but the biggest thing is to understand how many options you actually have and then be able to properly execute on getting your game in front of them showing them what they need to see closing the deal and signing a contract mm. but it, it all starts with understanding your options do you have a way that you like to organize the approach to publishers? Like, for example, oh, we always want to start with the best publisher because that way we don't make a deal with the wrong with with anyone less. Or, oh, we want to start with not quite the best so that we test how people react and are able to improve the pitch. How do you think about that? Given right now that there are so many games out there, last week, 200 some games got launched on Steam. Wow. It's ridiculous. If you try to pace it too much you're gonna cause problems so you know what we do and what we teach developers to do is you pare down that list of 750 publishers which is you can actually download from our website i mean it's right there we'll put the link in the show notes yeah knowing who the publishers are create a target list and then within that target list yes you can triage people but you need to get it out in front of everyone as soon as it's applicable to do so, which is basically as soon as you have a playable deck. The numbers game is a big factor. What's that? The numbers, playing the numbers is a huge factor. It is. Okay. When, if you are fortunate enough to end up with multiple publishers who are interested in, and you start talking numbers and contracts with them, that's when you can start going, okay, here's my tier one options. Here's my tier two options. But quite frankly, you don't know if you're going to get that. And it's not that often that happens, yeah. especially like for a, a bidding war kind of situation. Yeah. You've got to get one person interested before you can get, you know, six or seven interested. So there are, you know, better publishers. There are ways that we go through and we triage and we drive things. And we've got the parameters on our side that we recommend. But at the, the end of the day, though, every game is different. Every developer is different. What they need is different. And if you look at some publishers out there and you judge their future performance based on their past experience, it's I mean, just a different producer on a game can have a heavy weight on how one game does from a publisher versus the next one. So, oh, yeah. You mean at the publishing company? To, yeah. Yeah, totally. Having been that producer, I get that. Because yeah. some of them are just going to go through the motions and others are going to really get behind your project and see it as their project and really lobby for it inside their company and outside their company to make it a success. And others are just in it to check off the boxes. It's a, 
it's a lot of work, which quite frankly is the reason I've had a job for 20 plus years. You can't just go out there and pitch your game to a bunch of publishers. And when somebody says, yeah, we're interested, then you just up and sign a deal. It's right. Like, you've got to do your research you know, into what they've done in the past down to who are you going to put on my title? Who's my producer going to be? Who's my communication contact? There, there's a lot of work that goes into this. And I don't, I think a lot of developers don't realize it because they don't have to, quite frankly, they don't have to do it as often. I'm in a position where I'm pitching titles monthly for two decades. And so I understand it, but if you're coming in brand new and you're like, Oh, okay, this looks easy. I just go to these events and pitch the game and, and talk to people when they start getting into it, they're like, Oh my God, this is like a lot of work. <laughs> yes. It's a lot of work. That's why I have a job because we handle that. And also an indie dev on their own might not understand what actually is salient and significant to publishers when they're making a decision. What do they really care about? Which actually brings me to something I wanted to ask you, which is having done all these pitches, what are some of the big, cause I have my own sort of list of like pitch no-nos that I've seen that really bug me and, and I want people not to do. I'm curious what yours are. What are the mistakes that you see people making? You always have to have a demo today. You can't not ha have a demo. You, you can show a video, but you can't go in and just say, hey, here's this game on paper that we want to do. And this is what we're going to do. You've got to have something playable, something that you've got to have a video first and foremost when you're going and doing stuff. It's, and you've got 30 seconds. When someone starts watching one of these videos, your gameplay video, if you don't hook them in that first 30 seconds, then you're not going to get them. They're going to turn it off. They're going to go away. Same with a slide deck. I had a, a developer send me a 27-page slide deck as a pitch deck for their game. And I was like, you need to cut more than half of this out. It's You have 10 to 15 slides before you lose their interest. I, I've heard that complaint. In fact, I just heard this a couple of weeks ago. Uh, a colleague got a got a pitch that was like an hour and a half. And at the end oh, of it, he geez. just he not only did he not want to do the project, he just never wanted to talk to those people ever, ever again. Yeah, and it happens. That is the reality of it. It's you. On one hand, it's understanding and being able to boil down your game into its most basic elements. But on the other hand, it's a matter of understanding that people have a time limit. They can't sit there and listen to you for an hour and a half talk about the reason the elves and the dwarves have been fighting in your game lore for the last 300 years. It's the you same reason I tell people, hey, if you don't write a cover letter, that's three pages, no matter how passionate it is, because it's offensive to the other person's sense of their own time. You're showing that you don't care about them as an audience. Exactly. But um, there's a whole art form around, okay, how do I get you know, my pitch and my deck down into 10, 15 slots. And how do I create a gameplay video that shows everything I wanted to show in 45 seconds? That's a, those are skills in and of themselves. Yep. And, and you got to do, you got to also be able to demonstrate it, right? If I see a pitch that's, we're going to have a great, compelling story. I'm always thinking to myself, just tell me the story. Can you give me a story? Can you give me a one sentence story that compels me? Because otherwise, why should I believe you? We're going to have amazing much... graphics, but there's no picture. Like <laughs> my favorite was this was, yeah, this was 15 years ago, a, a developer that I was watching the gameplay video and he goes, okay, imagine the graphics 25% better in what, what? And I don't even know. Are you talking about you're going to add 25% more polys? Is it going to run? I, I don't know what the hell that they're going to actually put that phrase on the screen in the final product. Yes. Exactly. It's very much still a, what have you done for me lately 
yeah. industry, you know, what you did five years ago, while commendable, isn't really applicable to what you're doing. So you're saying that's another thing is like relying too much on your past successes and not showing in the product what you're going to do now that you've got it. You've got it now. You have to do both, but you can't your track record walking in the door with a, in a game that's not playable in any way, shape or form isn't going to get you a deal. It's okay. You were the lead designer on Diablo three, but that was a multi hundred person team and you've got eight people. So how is that really going to correlate to what you're doing right now? Makes sense. Now, I'm curious, given these experiences, given the fact that you're so in the mix and are so familiar with what all these different publishers and developers are up to, what are some of the areas of opportunity that you see for devs now? There was a time where Steam was a great opportunity. There was a time where Apple Arcade might have been a great opportunity. What do you see happening now and in the future? Damn, Jordan, that's a good one. One is for the right game, you can actually still go to retail. There's a couple of retail publishers that have popped up. And if you had asked me five years ago, I'm like, there's no, there's not going to be anyone doing retail. Retail is somewhat viable mm -hmm. at, at this point. People guess. are still buying games at Walmart. Yeah, because, partly because it's the only place you can buy them. But it's still very much a real thing. Everybody wants to talk about cloud and the Netflix of gaming. And I just basically want to backhand somebody every time I hear Netflix of gaming, because we've been Netflix of gaming now for a decade. And sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. The interesting thing in the last year is we're seeing more of these platforms realize they have to have exclusive contract, which sounds like basic abc type stuff if people don't go and sign up for netflix so they can watch friends they do it so they can watch orange is the new black or the marvel movies or whatever else is exclusive on there right, right now. almost more like hbo than the original yeah, netflix exactly. yeah and we've seen apple arcade pop up and apple's obviously paying for development google stadia is paying for development right now microsoft is paying for development on game pass and i forget which developer it was but in the last month, they said our game is still at digital retail, but it's also on Microsoft Game Pass and our Steam sales have basically tripled because it's on Game Pass. Mm -hmm. Cloud gaming and you know, I bundle streaming, gaming and subscription all cloud-based gaming is, is here to stay. There's not going to be a one-shot solution. The big thing now is Amazon's jumping in with Luna, it's okay, newsflash, Amazon tried this shit 10 years ago and they failed dramatically at it. And so you can't just open the door and go, hey, we're here and there's gonna be one solution. Stadia is real, I mean, talk about talk about a team that tried to make a big splash and is almost forgotten about at this point in the conversation. If you had asked me that two months ago, I would have been like, yeah, it's a complete waste of time. And their launch was abysmal. Mm. Even when they came out at, was it GDC? It or, was, yeah. I watched that and I was like, okay, you just basically used an hour of my time and told me nothing. I think they have the right idea, but you're not going to get acceptance in the core gaming space when I have to go rebuy the game that I already bought. So I can play it on your hardware that you made me buy. And That's like you said, what, there's no exclusive content. There wasn't, but now there is. Oh, and what so, do they have now? Some indies. They have some indie yeah, stuff going basically. on. That's the lowest barrier for any of these publishers to get. Before you pull a Microsoft and start paying $7.5 billion for Bethesda, 
the easiest and quickest content that you can get is indie games and they're a little cheaper too. I just wonder but, if that's going to do the trick for Google. My sense is it probably won't. I think it's great for the indies to get involved and get out there and good for them. But I wonder if that's really going to bring people to a platform. I, I don't think so right now, but there's a lot of opportunity out there. And I think when the pandemic hit, there was some negative press along the fact of I as an indie dev can't go to PAX or I can't go to GDC. And so my sales are going to plummet. And that was not the case. It right. still is not the case. If anything, this pandemic has been a godsend to indie developers because it has forced the rest of the industry to look digitally in terms of acquisitions. And now you're able to very easily get your game in front of hundreds of publishers. To some extent, it, it breaks down some of the barriers or distinctions between big players and small That's players, exactly increases the kind of appetite of the audience for content, maybe decreases the speed at which um, the big players can release new content on their own. A lot of opportunities showing up there. It, it, so the, the conversation we had this morning, and it was with uh, Fernando Rizzo from, he's the CEO over at Modern Wolf. And the point that he brought up is, Think about when you and I were releasing games 10 years ago. A launch campaign was 18 months long. You announced a game, mm. you went into development, you hyped the game up for a year, and then you had a big launch. You, know, you dripped anymore. out screenshots and you had the reporters yes. come in for this one little sliver of a preview, and then they came in for the bigger preview. And yeah. Now, most recently, and this is like in the last few months, I mean, you're seeing two month and sometimes two week campaigns the the example he brought up this morning was you're talking about ea just released squadrons which in all fairness could easily be billed as a successor to the old x-wing mm -hmm. versus tie fighter games for some of the biggest games of all time yeah they didn't do an 18 month cycle they did about a two month three month cycle they announced it it launched and, and, that, and that's it well you remember so, apex i feel like apex really yeah. is what started this whole showed really yeah, that this was I'll, viable. I'll, I'll go one earlier than Apex is Fallout Shelter from Bethesda. Announced that like at a... But that was free to download, yeah. right? Oh, Apex mm -hmm. is too, yeah. But Squadrons yeah. isn't, so that's an interesting, no. that is an interesting progression. You go from like free to download, sort of casual, to free to download sort of AAA, to like paid AAA, yep. yeah. Because I mean, the point that he brought up, which is a good one, is if you look at the data, on Steam Wishlist, for example. Older games in Steam Wishlist don't convert on nearly the scale that something newer does. And if you think, I'd never sat down and actually put that together, but even my own gaming, I realize it. I'll get an email that says, you have 14 games that are on sale. And then I look at the email, I'm like, I don't even know what half of those are because I wishlisted them like a year ago yeah. or six months ago. I don't even know why I wishlisted it anymore. Now it's with so much content being out there, our ADD brains are even more ADD than normal. I think uh, a lot of players, they want to stream it on Twitch. They want to tweet about it. They want to be part of the conversation. They want to make YouTube videos. And, and that will also, the engagement there is always going to be higher on new content than like you're yep. playing something from two years ago. Yep. So that just keeps the cycle going. It puts pressure on publishers and developers to you know, have a lineup of stuff that's coming out. Mm. And if the bad side of it is... We're almost back to the old retail days of if that game doesn't perform in the first three or four 
weeks, then they're going to kill it. And, and I say that, and then I have things like this. Podcast can't see me. My background right now is Among Us, a game that was floundering on Steam for two years and then just absolutely exploded in mm-hmm. the last you know three weeks. It's not like a lot of industries where you can go, okay, this is the optimal way to do everything. There's not an optimal way. It's understanding the market, understanding the business, and being able to adapt to it on a whim. That's the hard part. Yeah, I, I see what you're saying about if something doesn't fly, they're going to oftentimes let it go quickly. But on the other hand, stories like Among Us and also Rocket League. Rocket League was apparently languishing for two years or something where they just, they continued to just support it, tweak it, look at the data. I learned that from, um, we had a guest on Gordon Rowe who told that story. So, and Among Us is another great example. The the only difference is Rocket League was a different game. It was, I forget what it was. Right, that's right. It was a different game before that. And then they basically just prettied it up, repackaged it, and boom, they launched it again and it was gone. Among Us is so odd because it literally wasn't. I mean, as a matter of fact, like they had already announced they were working on a sequel. (laughs) Now they've announced that they're not working on the sequel anymore. (laughs) And it's three people. When Fortnite took off, it's like my entire LinkedIn feed was, we're hiring. It doesn't even matter what we're hiring for. We're hiring for everything because even a company the size of Epic that handles not only original games, but also the back end and the engine of hundreds, if not thousands of games, even they weren't prepared for what happened when Fortnite just exploded. The Fall Guys right now are also just, we just will hire, we just need people. I don't know what you're going to do. We need people with a pulse and that's it. And so it's, you just, you have to be nimble. You, you mm-hmm. can't come into the industry and say, okay, here's our two year development pipeline. And this is all the features we're going to have. And it's, it's not that easy. 10 years ago, you were shooting at a moving target when you did that. Now the target is moving and disappearing and reappearing and warping. And you, you just have to be able to be nimble with it and be ready for whatever. All those points you make make me think, hey, you know what? It's also about just getting products out and iterating. So even if your first or second or third product doesn't succeed, you're getting data, you're learning what people want, you're building those relationships, you're understanding how to make better games. Like just having that one game that you have to get perfect can really hold you back keep you from jumping in the pool and ultimately having that success. That is one of the biggest mistakes that we see new teams making. It's like they, in their head, they have their magnum opus that mm-hmm. they want to create. And you, you can't really do that. You've got to start smaller and get some base hits out there and, and understand here's the basics and this is how you do it before you can develop a game with a two-year dev cycle you need to do a game with a two-month dev cycle right and ship it and see what happens after you ship it yeah and you can't start with the witcher 3 yeah exactly the developers and the studios who understand analytics and i don't care how we're not talking about your you're pulling data and add stuff out of people but understanding even the analytics in your own game are the ones that are going to be successful and i started playing fallout 76 when it first launched and no it wasn't like the greatest thing ever but bethesda is a huge company that has been around for a very long time they're looking at all of this data that nobody else is seeing except for them they know what's working and what isn't and whether or not they need to continue working on this. And obviously they were seeing enough that they were like, yeah, 
this is working. You can't always take the negativity from Twitter and Reddit and apply it as an actual reality because you don't know what's going on. Totally. One thing I want to talk to you about is funding, like early stage funding. So before people are coming to you to help them close publishing companies, but while they're working on the demo, what have you seen the successful teams doing to get their projects up and going before they come to you? Making sure you understand what it's going to take to get it out the door in the first place. And in a lot of cases, you have to have another job. How long is it going to take a final publisher? On average, for the last, I will say, for 21 of the last 23 years, it's three months. Now it takes longer, just simply because of the sheer number of games that are coming across the desks. And you know, publishers are frantically trying to get as many games out as possible right now because mm. you know, with the pandemic, there's a ton of money in the industry. And they also feel, and I don't think any of us know yet, but the feeling is when this pandemic is over or if it continues to go on, all this money that has been chunked into the industry, just hand over fist for the last eight months, is going to die. It's going to go away. There's two things that people buy when situations like this hit or recessions hit, and that's entertainment and alcohol. And eventually you're not going to have enough spare money and, and food and rent is going to be more important than games and beer. And that's going to go away. And so right now it's one of those, you got to make hay while the sun's shining and publishers are trying to make as much hay as possible, but that creates its own bottlenecks. And it's one of those that you just really need to, you need to understand what it's going to take to get your game out there and, and be realistic about it. But that's the bottom line. That's a, that's great advice. And Jay, it's been great having you on. I think we could do a whole nother show here just about the impact of uh, COVID on the industry. We're, we're done here now? We can, I can, we can keep going for hours. I, I certainly know you can, and I appreciate your time. Let me give folks the quick rundown on, on IGB and, yes. and why we do it and what we do it. It's, I that's, that's the Indie Games Business Initiative. Indie Games Business. And if you Google Indie Game Business, chances are it'll come up, or you can just go to IndieGame.com business and all of this stuff is there. The whole reason we started it was because it was frustrating the fact that to learn this stuff and to hear the lectures that happen at GDC and Gamescom and, and all of these conferences, you're spending five, ten thousand dollars to get there. And not everybody can do that. And so I was like, why don't we just bring those sessions to Twitch? And so that's what we did to start with. Cool. Um, and now that has grown and there's a podcast and and that part had taken off. And so the next step was if they can't go to a conference and learn the business side, then they can't go and meet publishers either. And so that's when in early 2019, we started doing digital events. I spent all of last year jumping up and down telling people, you've got to digital events are the future. They're more accessible. They're cheaper. You get all of this. Nobody cared. And then February of this year hits <laughs> and it's, we're all doing digital conferences. Uh, we literally, so our Q4 2019 Indie Game Business event had about 150 attendees. The one that we did in March of 2020 had over a thousand. And wow. so that's how quickly, but we do this to give developers a chance. We will teach you about the business of games through the podcast or through a webinar. And then the discord is, you know, we're up to almost 2000 industry professionals in that thing. And that's, that's just another aspect of it. It's the part of my job that makes me smile the most. It's, it's, I love being able to do it. I think what you're doing is really great and, and really helpful for a lot of developers. And, and ultimately that means 
more great games for people to play, including us. Yeah, I support all the way. We'll get the links in the show notes and it's great having you on and I'd love to have you back sometime. Yeah, anytime, Jordan. You know that. Okay, that was the interview with Jay. I just rhymed, which is fantastic. If you can use this information to get some great games made, that makes me very happy. If you know someone who would benefit from the information in this interview, please share this with them so that they can succeed and they can make better games or have their great games get published. And again, subscribe, write a review. That is how you support the show. And thanks. I'll see you on the next episode of Playmakers. Okay, so you've made it to the latest secret meeting of our secret end of the episode club. Congratulations. I am proud to be amongst among among us. I have amongst us. I was just trying to work in among us somehow and it didn't work. But I am proud to be here with you right now in a secret club sharing that brotherhood, that sisterhood. And here's the thing, we're going to have fewer meetings of the club in the near term. If you want to know if a meeting is coming up, you're just going to have to make it to the end of that episode, but we will not be doing one in the next episode. And then after that, we'll just, we'll just have to wait and see, you know, because here's the thing, if I do a secret meeting every single time, then everyone knows it's coming and it's not that secret, but if it only happens sometimes, then it's like this super special thing. And so that's where we're going with this. That's what the club is all about. Now, as a member of the super secret end of the episode club, you are entitled to have your opinion heard on the show. Give me feedback of what you want. And when you send me an email, jordan at brightblack.co, make sure to mention in the subject, super secret end of the episode club, so that I know and prioritize your feedback as a member. So with that said, I will see you in the next episode. Thanks for being a member of this super special, super secret, super awesome, and somewhat infrequent end of the episode club. See you next time.